Well, hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me, Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode, we're continuing 15,000 Miles in a Catch by Captain Raymond Rallier de Batty, published in 1922. Now, if you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner. And there, for $5 a month, you can help support the podcast and keep these books in circulation. Now, I'll just share with you, as I have before, that in this book, there are two sections at about minute two and minute 15, where the characters engage in seal hunting. And if you've just had a meal or you don't fancy listening to that, those are definitely parts to perhaps miss out. And today we're on part seven and we're beginning chapter five. Let's get on with the story. Chapter 5 On the morning after our arrival in Christmas Harbour, we went on shore and killed our first seals. It will seem that we were in rather a hurry to go hunting, but the truth is we wanted to test our skill in what was butcher's work, but very necessary in our scheme of life. Also, as I must confess, it was difficult to resist the temptation of experimenting immediately with the preparation of that oil, which was to be our chief source of wealth at our journey's end. Later in our story, I shall have to tell of great seal hunts when we were surrounded at one time by more than a hundred of those huge sea elephants and when we were not without peril among them. But although on our first day ashore on the mainland of Kogulian we met and killed only ten seals, the excitement of that day's hunt still lives in my memory. They were lying on a ledge of rock close to the sea where an old bull among them, measuring over twenty feet in length, lay among his wives telling them stories perhaps of those days far back in his life, when the man-hunter first came with his death-dealing weapons to massacre his herds. There lay he lazily, suspecting no danger, and blinking in the morning light. Some of the families were asleep or scratching themselves cosily with their flippers. We came upon them suddenly, armed with heavy clubs and one gun. It was with the clubs that we first attacked. A good hard blow on the head of the female seals would kill them outright, but naturally at first we were clumsy in our attack, and I was alarmed when I saw the lads within reach of the great mouths of those beasts which they thrust forward with a sudden jerk. One bite would have taken a limb off. But my young fellows were active, and the seals retreated, always face forward to their foes, until they were stunned and killed by the blows which were hurled upon them by Agne, whose lead-weighted club circled above his head and fell upon his victim with prodigious strength. The old bull I shot through the head, It was now our duty to skin the animals and to strip them of the blubber, which forms a layer several inches thick between the skin and the flesh. It is perfectly white, and very much like pig's lard in appearance. With our knives we set to work at this job, and I am bound to say it was by no means a pleasant or elegant task. The boys were not handy at first, and they were covered with blood and grease, and I never saw a more horrid or disgusting mess than we made on that rocky plateau in Christmas Harbour. However, These unpleasant things have to be done when one goes on a picnic to desert islands and one must not be too delicate or thin-skinned. Having gathered together a large pile of blubber in great slices, we stowed it into a boat and rowed alongside the J.B. Charcot, where we were received with enthusiasm by Henry, LaRose and Esno, who had remained on board. The next business on hand was to melt down the blubber into oil and to make the casks to store it. The first operation was an abomination, the second an exasperation. To obtain our oil we brought out our stewing kettles and set them on deck. Then we lighted a little furnace beneath them, 
packed the blubber into the kettles, screwed them down and waited the result with mingled anxiety and pride. The result was appalling. From the furnace there rolled up and away over Kogulian a thick black smoke as though we had established a factory on the island desolation. The smoke blinded us and choked us, but it was as nothing to the aroma which began to proceed from the kettles and increased in pungency with terrifying speed. That smell was haunting in its really damnable offensiveness. For miles around we made ourselves an abomination to nature. The stench from those kettles was sickening even to seamen who are not too squeamish. It worked its way into our clothes and into the pores of our skin. It pervaded every corner of the ship. It took away our appetite for food. Larose himself no longer sat down to his meals with that voracity which was his peculiar characteristic and was decidedly off-colour. The J.B. Charcot was a disgrace to her owners. The clean little white soul of her must have revolted against such evil treatment, for her decks were swimming in grease and blood. Meanwhile, I retired to a quiet spot beyond, where, untroubled and unabashed by the observation of my comrades, I undertook to make the casks in which our oil was to be held. It had, of course, been impossible to bring out with us two hundred ready-made casks. The hold of the J.B. Charcot was not nearly large enough for such a cargo, but I had brought with us all the material necessary for cask-making, and all that I had to do was to fix the staves together and nail the hoops onto them. It seemed a simple affair, and had I not taken a lesson in Paris before starting on the expedition? It is true, the lesson lasted only ten minutes, but the expert manufacturer of casks showed me how the trick was done, and said with a friendly smile, You see, there's nothing in it. Any fool can make a cask. I began to work with a sense of mastery, with my hammer handy and my nails and hoops and staves most admirably disposed. I rolled up my shirt sleeves and prepared to produce half a dozen good casks in a very short time. It is so simple, I said to myself, as my friend remarked. Any fool could do it. But somehow or other, things did not work out in the way I had expected. I took the staves, placed them together ready for the hoop, when, to my chagrin, as I put the last stave in position, the whole bundle tumbled apart like a house of cards blown down by a puff of wind. I cursed my clumsiness and started again. The same thing happened. At the third time, this reiteration of failure was ridiculous, and I laughed aloud. Come, come, I said. This won't do, you know. When, at the fifteenth time of trying, the pieces of wood were scattered about in all directions, it was no longer a farce but a tragedy. Good Lord, I thought, what will happen if I cannot get these cursed casks together? What is the use of hunting seals and boiling oil if we cannot store it when it is all prepared? How can we pay our men when we get to Melbourne, supposing we ever get there, if we arrive without any source of wealth? Beads of perspiration broke out upon my brow. I grew impatient with my tools and flung them about. I kicked those senseless pieces of wood as if that would do them any good and I thought of Henry's face when I went back and confessed to this most dismal failure. Then I recovered from my fit of foolishness and made a vow that I would never leave the job until I had made myself master of it. So again and again, with stubborn patience now, and like poor old Robinson Crusoe building the boat which he could never get down to the shore, I grappled with the difficulty of my new trade, and after a whole day's work of the most humiliating character, I at last stood exhausted in mind and body, and surveyed with an infinite sense of satisfaction, one complete cask, 
which seemed to my eyes a very pretty thing. I rolled it along the sand, laughing and shouting to where my brother and two men were enveloped in smoke, still busy in making that appalling stench of blubber oil. Henry said, Good man, how many have you done? And I then told him that this was the only child of my hands. He listened to my tale of trouble with some concern, for we both realised that if I could only make one cask a day, it would take us the best part of a year to produce the 200 we required, and time was short for that, even on a desert island. But I assured him that now I had made one, the others would come easily enough, and we became cheerful when we ladled our first quart of oil into the barrel. But then I was disconcerted by a horrible discovery. The cask leaked at every join. The greasy oil trickled out almost as fast as it was ladled in. It was a dismal failure after all. I could have wept salt tears of grief and disgust. If Henry had chafed me at that time, I think we should have quarrelled bitterly. But he was only serious and concerned and shared my sorrow. However, to cut a long story short, I went to work again and this time my efforts were rewarded. After further practice, I produced six barrels, not only workmanlike in appearance, but really rather sound and watertight. I had become a master of my craft after so many disappointments and failures. If the worst came to the worst, I shall always be able to earn my bread as a cask maker. It was with joy that we put six barrels of first-class oil into our hold, with the knowledge that during the next twelve months there would be no difficulty in getting a full cargo of the precious stuff provided the sea elephants did not abandon Desolation Island. I must explain here that the skin of these animals was useless to us. The sea elephants of Kogulian are of quite a different species from the fur seals, and their coarse, short-coated hair is of no value in the market, but their flesh was a new and magnificent source of supply to our larder. All the way from Boulogne to Desolation Island, I had said, "'Wait until we get to Kogulian, my boys,' Then we will have great feasts of seal flesh. It is better than this tinned beef and mutton, I can tell you. I had made good meals of it before, many a time on my Antarctic voyage with Dr. Charcot, but my comrades were somewhat afraid of the prospect of such fare. In Christmas Harbour, however, they took their first meal of it, and it was an enormous success. Henry did the cooking, stewing the seal with onions and good butter from tins. It was very palatable, I assure you. Contrary to general belief, Seal meat is neither rank nor fishy. It is a dark meat and a little coarse, perhaps, but in no way offensive. The heart and liver are especially good. You may imagine LaRose when he sat down to such a dish. He was in the seventh heaven of delight, and I believe that he was composing poetry to himself as he abandoned himself to the joy without any restriction upon his appetite. We had been very glad to get into the tranquil waters of Christmas Harbour, as we found them when we arrived in fair weather, but, as a matter of fact, after 24 hours, we discovered that we were in a very bad anchorage. We had three anchors dropped, but on the second night, they dragged a mile through the black sand when a breeze sprang up. I had been below for a time, and when I came up on deck, I was amazed to see where we were. The Rose was keeping watch on deck, and I exclaimed, "'Don't you see we have dragged, my lad? Why on earth didn't you shout out?' "'Captain,' he replied in his simple, courteous way, "'I kept my eye on a rock on shore,' and it is still there. Well, yes, I said, and angry as I was, I could hardly resist a smile. The rock is still there, but we are not. The Rose's faith in all being well so long as the rock remained was very characteristic of him. He had a similar faith in other things, 
and I think he would have been calm in the midst of an earthquake, so long as his own feet were firm upon the ground, and his own meal remained to be eaten. It was at this point in Christmas Harbour, to which we had drifted, that we found the flagstaff that had been erected in 1893, when the Ure came to Kerguelen to take possession of the island for France. There was no flag flying, but the solitary mast gave us a thrill when we saw it. It seemed to be a signal to us from the country that was so many thousands of miles away. We stood out of Christmas Harbour at ten o'clock one morning and went southward, passing on our starboard a very conspicuous rock which is charted as Sentry Box Island. On account of its peculiar shape and without incident, we reached Loom Bay and dropped anchor in 16 fathoms. We found the bay to differ greatly from the charts and during our stay here of one month, we made a careful plan of it. It is full of kelp, a luxuriant seaweed. There is a high mountain about half a mile from shore to the northward and the sparse grass that covers the lower ledge of the rock ceases at about 300 feet above sea level. After that, there are very scattered patches of lichen to cover the bare sides of the peaks. Here it was that my men learned that the sea elephant is not the harmless beast that they imagined. Throughout the night, we could hear large numbers of them barking with a strange gruff roar, not unlike wild beasts of the tropical jungles, which I have learnt to imitate with some success, though not with the same power of lungs. Sitting in our little cabin, or at watch on deck in the darkness of the night, it was a peculiar sensation to be under the great black cliffs, towering up like the shadows of immense fortress walls, and to hear those deep barking voices reverberating around us as though the beasts were fighting in deadly combat. When we went on shore the next day, all was quiet. An intense silence brooded over this part of the island, broken only by the cries of the seabirds, sounding like wailing voices down the wind. But we saw twenty big bull elephants, upwards of eighteen feet in length, lying on the rocks within ten yards of the sea. We attacked them with our clubs and with a lance, but they did not yield so easily as the females at Christmas Harbour. We could not kill them, though the blood on the seals with which we soon became bespattered bore testimony to the severity of the battle. We returned to the attack with an axe, but things became very warm, for those tough old males were heroes of their tribe and never turned their backs upon a foe. They kept their giant jaws facing to the enemy, and while we were busy with one of them, the others would waddle forward and dart out their necks, roaring horribly. Agne, more emotional than I had ever seen him, had hurried forward, running and flourishing his club and shouting war cries. There came into my mind old stories of the Vikings. This tall, fair Norman lad, charging those great elephants of the sea, might have been one of those Scandinavians whose deeds have been sung in the sagas, such as Leif the Lucky himself, son of Eric the Red. He was indeed filled with berserker rage, and again, as he went brandishing his stick and shouting, I thought also of Taylofer, the minstrel of Norman William, who, with swinging battle-axe, rushed upon the Saxons at the head of the conqueror's knights. While the lust of battle was in his soul, he was no longer the gentle sailor who played the accordion, but a very fiend of destruction, and careless of those gaping fiends which sought to devour him. Jean Bontemps, our sturdy boatswain, was hardly less excited than Agne, though not so heroic in his appearance or execution. Let me kill them, let me kill them, he shouted when I was attacked at close quarters by one of those big beasts. But neither my club nor Bon Tomps could knock the life out of the tough old elephant. It was a dreadful massacre, and the sight of it would shock sensitive people at home who would not hurt a mouse. But remember that we were upon Desolation Island and had returned to the primitive conditions of nature. 
We were not, unlike the prehistoric men of the Stone Age, attacking those great monsters whose bones are so quiet now in our museums. That herd of sea elephants, so ungainly, so monstrous, so hideous with their proboscis nosing at us and their tails beating the rocks and their huge squat bodies crawling after us, was a sight not to be met with in the highways of civilization, and called to the old brute strength in man by which he became master of the world. To tell the truth, however, this attack with clubs was too dangerous to ourselves and too clumsy in its method to be adopted by us in future. During that great fight with the twenty bulls, the black rocks ran red with blood, and the place was a shambles. In the end, I had to send back for a gun to finish these fierce brutes, and never again did I go seal hunting without that weapon. But we could never take more than one gun, for I am certain that if our men had been armed in this way, they would have killed each other in sheer excitement. However, on this occasion, we had killed all the twenty seals without suffering any danger ourselves, though that night when we went on board, we were utterly exhausted and of deplorable appearance and uncleanliness. That night, a gale blew with tremendous gusts, but next day there was fair weather and we went to collect the blubber from the dead seals. Foolishly, we again tried to melt the blubber on deck, Henry and I superintending the cattles while the men were on shore cutting up the seals. There was once more a scene of stench and filth on board the J.B. Charcot, and as a horrible climax, a flame caught the floating oil and it flared up in great tongues of fire which scared us mightily. The men also were frightened when they saw the glare of light on the ship, and we heard them shouting to us. My brother and I kept our presence of mind, jammed the lids upon the bubbling cauldrons and threw buckets of water on deck, so that the danger was soon past. Obviously, however, the deck of our ship was the last place in which to prepare seal oil, and we transferred the cattles and furnish to the shore. For the next ten days, I was hard at work making casks, and I found that I could put them together at the rate of four a day, two in the morning and two in the afternoon. Afterwards, I became so expert that I could make 15 and upwards in a single day. 20, however, were enough for some time, and having produced that number, I put my tools away. We then decided, as it was good weather, to go for a little expedition, and having put out the fire in the cook's galley, we lowered the boats and rowed to Long Island. Hundreds of seals were on the rocks here, but we contented ourselves with killing only a few, and came back from our journey with boatloads of blubber. At Loom Bay, we busied ourselves in building on the beach what we called in our pride the oil factory. This was merely a rough hut to shelter our melting furnace. It was little but a roof made of planks and seal skins with a chimney, but it looked very fine to us. The skins, as I have already said, had no commercial value, so that ladies who shudder at the idea of using seal skins as building material need not be alarmed at our extravagance. For ten days, we worked hard melting down our new stock of blubber, and then, taking Agne with me in the lightest flat-bottomed boat, I set out on a short expedition northward, around Lucky Point into Breakwater Bay and Clump Bay. Most of the names of this part of the coast, by the way, have been given by American sealers, who have paid occasional visits. In Clump Bay, we dragged our boat on shore and went inland on foot, the chief objects of our quest being to find coal, of which we were in urgent need for our oil factory, and to put new information on the chart. About two miles from the beach, we found a stretch of white sand, surrounded by a natural wall of rock, which we called the Garden, for, seen from the distance, it looks exactly like that. Pushing forward, we reached a group of curiously round hills called the Beehives, 
and were now round at the back of Loon Bay, where our ship lay at anchor. Tremendous gusts of wind volleyed from the south-east through a deep gully, which on the chart is called the Devil's Punch Bowl, and it was easy to see that this storm-swept land could never be covered with vegetation. We saw no trees, but only bare rocks and rugged hills, and walking was a slow and tiring task, especially in the high wind. I can well believe Sir James Clark Ross when he says that one of his men was actually blown into the sea when going ashore on Kogulian, and that he only saved himself by lying flat on the ground. These squalls are called woolies or willy wars by the sealers. When Agni and I stumbled on mile after mile over that rock-strewn ground, my eyes were busy with the scenery that lay around us, and once again my soul was impressed by the solitary and desolate grandeur of it. At one time nature must have played wild pranks here, and Kagulian must have been one of the cauldrons of the primeval world when the earth was being shaped in the womb of time. Vast volcanic eruptions had thrown up these great peaks and plateau of basalt and dolerite, and then, ever since, the wind and rain and frost and snow had been at work carving them grotesquely, furrowing the face of them with deep scars, undermining the projecting ledges, digging deep caverns, splitting them with huge cracks and crevices, carving crowns upon the tops of the peaks, planing the tabletops and polishing some of the long smooth slopes of the hills. Here and there on the cliff walls were single pillar-shaped rocks curiously carved and looking from a distance exactly like giant sentinels keeping watch and ward over the battlements. Upon the higher slopes were great boulders resting upon or between flat rocks in such a way that it seemed impossible for them to have got into such a position except by the agency of human ingenuity and mechanical force. Undoubtedly, in the first days of Kogulian, before history was written or men had appeared on earth, many of the great mountain ranges of Desolation Island had been unbroken walls of basalt, but continually great fragments had been split off, fretting the skyline and tumbling in disorder adown the slopes to form new peaks and plateau and terraced ridges. It seemed to me as I wandered with my comrade in this wild rock country, casting my eyes upward ever and anon to watch the snow-capped summits of the far mountains, that superstitious men in the olden time could have believed this place to be an abode of demons and the haunt of dreadful monsters. Our search for coal was not wonderfully successful. Agni and I both on the lookout for the black treasure. Now and again I stopped and picked up a stone which looked remarkably like the best black nuggets, and some of these I pocketed to take back to the ship to test as fuel. We had taken with us ten days' provisions, consisting of biscuit, tinned meat and jam, and a small spirit lamp for making hot cocoa. But having seen the desolate character of the land, and having noted and filled in on my chart many topographical features hitherto unmapped, I returned with Agne to Clump Bay at the end of just two days, and found our rowing boat on the beach. On our return journey to the J.B. Charcot, I made many soundings and observations in Breakwater Bay, and I should judge it to afford well, good anchorage. That's the end of today's chapter. On We're going to continue ship, with the story I produce my tomorrow. specimens of coal, now, if you haven't which already Henry agreed to be very promising, we put them into the galley fire. Forward slash the Mariner. You can follow the link me, in the podcast only description. Hot and there and we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing, interested in seamanship, and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help 
their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable. So at $5 a month, your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels going round. But if you are interested in developing your skills further, then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up, to the mate level. And there for $20 a month, you get access to the one hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, get into the nitty gritty of it and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So if any of that sounds interesting, go along to patreon.com forward slash the mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community. But that's all for today. So I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.